Hey, you guys, if you're thinking about going back to school, check out our sponsor, Samuel Merritt University's MSN and DNP Family Nurse Practitioner Programs. Right now, they're offering tons of scholarship opportunities up to $10,000. So visit them at fnp.samuelmerritt.edu forward slash good nurse and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's FNP Samuel Merritt with two R's and two T's dot edu forward slash good nurse. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and you can also see what they pay the stipend the hourly rate all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and we have another amazing week of true crime and storytelling for you. I've got a really special episode planned for you. First of all, we have Nurse Jessica back. Hey Jessica, how are you? I'm doing really well. Excited to be here again. I always love coming on this podcast. It's so much fun. But also we have another guest host with us this week because our good nurse story is actually going to be a good ER tech story. And you guys are definitely going to want to stick around for this one. It is It'll be a little gut-wrenching, but it's going to be worth it. It's also going to be very educational for people and inspiring. And so I can't wait to get to that. So without further ado, I want to welcome Joshua Shetterly. Hi, Joshua. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really happy to have you, and I'm excited to get to tell your story. And the subject that the whole story is centered around is something that's near and dear to my heart. And it does have to do with... IV drug use. So just in case, you know, for people, just a little trigger warning there. Um, they're definitely, we will be talking about drug use and that sort of thing. And I know that people always like to k- kind of have a little bit of a heads up about that sort of thing. I guess we can get started and get into this bad nurse story. And I will say, uh, just to sort of start off about this story, even though it is the bad nurse story, I'm not 100% sure that she did it. And I'm just going to say that up front because it's, definitely a little bit out there as far as the details of this. Very strange. So this is the story of Dee Windsor. And Dee was a nurse. She met her husband, Nick McCarthy, back in 1984. And they met in nursing school. And I guess he was in nursing school, but then eventually he decided to do something else, which people do. You know, that happens. Sometimes you get into nursing school and you realize this is not for me. (laughs) This is not for me at all. I think I'm going to go in a different direction. And so he decided to go into social work, but he was actually in a motorcycle accident and he was trapped under a bus, which left him paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah. So he was wheelchair bound. I know it really is. His doctor described him as a real survivor. Other people described him as resilient, self-sufficient, intelligent, enthusiastic. He loved attending concerts. I love attending concerts. I can totally relate. <laughs> I miss them. I miss them dearly. I'm so excited about things like that coming back now. So despite the fact that they hadn't been together a very long time, he married his girlfriend, Dee, 
she actually became a ward nurse. This happened in the UK for you guys. That the reason that I, I'm going to say ward, the ward and ward nurse a lot, which in the United States, we don't call them wards, but when in Rome, right? Or when in the UK. That's pretty admirable. I mean, she must, I would think she really loves him because they weren't married. He got in an accident, which she's paralyzed from the waist down. And that's a huge commitment, like mm-hmm. ginormous. I mean, Obviously, if you love somebody, you you go, you do leaps and bounds. But I'm just saying she had the option to hightail it and run. But I mean, if I'm reading the events correctly, she didn't. So far, I like her. I know. And as the story progresses, kept waiting when I was researching the story to be convinced otherwise, but it right. never quite happened. So they did get married. In 1991, he received a large settlement from London Transport because of the accident. And then two years later, in 1993, the couple welcomed a son, and life seemed pretty good for them. You know, they were living life. He was working as a social worker. She was working as a nurse, both of them advancing in their careers. So in 1997, everything changed, unfortunately. Uh, January 30th, 1997, Dee went to a work function, and because of where it was, she had to spend the night away from home. She spent the night at a colleague's house. Nick was recovering from the flu and and still not feeling well, so he stayed home. The next day, she tried to get a hold of him before going to work, and she couldn't reach him. Also, her son had not shown up to school. So Jane, the kindergarten teacher, notified her, hey, your your son's not here. What, you know, is, is everything okay? And so that, coupled with the fact that she couldn't get in touch with him, was a huge red flag. So she sent Jane, the kindergarten teacher, over to, to check on him and found Nick unconscious in a pool of vomit in the, in the bedroom. So he was taken to the hospital and he, quote, slipped into a coma. That's always something people say. <laughs> and it's something that we've always, I've always heard my whole life. And then when I get into the actual medical field and, and work in the hospital and work with patients, it's not something we, we say, we don't really refer to. People. Right. You're like, is it a, a medically induced coma? Is it their brain dead? What are we talking about here? A CT uncovered that he had brain swelling and a blood test indicated that he was hypoglycemic. I mean, that could have just been a finger prick, but the doctors basically said they couldn't do anything else for him. He died February 9th, 1997. Just about a, a, a little over a week later. Despite an in- extensive autopsy, they could not find where he would have been injected with insulin. Now, I know that those sub-Q needles are very small, but I can always see. I, I don't know about you guys. But I can always see where where they were injected. I disagree with that. Yeah. Now, listen, I get Botox, okay? All right. I'm, I'm happy. To say that, I do. Um, <laughs> and I'll be honest, after five minutes after you leave there, you you can't see your forehead looks completely normal. It is possible that you could not find an injection site. I mean, mm. seriously, like I, I've had it done and you, you can just go about your day and nobody would be the wiser. Like you just, you can't see it. So do you think there's any chance that the little needles I use for Botox are maybe a little bit smaller gauge than uh, maybe the insulin ones? I know they're small, but you also have to inject actually, quite a bit. They, a large, I know too much about this. A large majority <laughs> of people actually use insulin syringes with the insulin needle and convert the dosage to insulin doses and actually inject it. Yeah. In, in units and inject it with that needle. So it is tiny, teeny, tiny. So I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate. 
it's possible that they couldn't see it. Yeah. So there you have it. They really didn't have a clear motive. And his death was technically ruled questionable, but that it was a possibility that it was due to insulin poisoning. And so police decided to go ahead with a murder case and started investigating it. And then in January of 1998, they charged her with his murder and said that she had the means and know-how to poison someone with insulin. They really didn't have a, a very clear motive. I'm not an ear nurse. I don't have any of that experience. I'm not an ICU nurse. But what would cause the brain swelling? Like what part of that? I'm, I'm trying to understand. Like if somebody OD'd from insulin and they've got hypoglycemic, what would cause the brain swelling? Like that's just the part I, I don't understand. Like was there trauma? Like blunt force trauma? Or was it no, Joshua? I don't... Do you have anything to add to this? No, it could be a few things, but. I'm so curious about the injecting site and why there was not visible. I would say if maybe somebody took a microscope probably un- over my face with, you know, close magnification, then right. they probably could find obviously where I had Botox, but it's not obvious to the naked eye. I have no idea how an autopsy works or what details they do. And maybe they do magnify and, you know, look detailed like that. And they probably could figure it out, but I still am very curious about brain swelling. Maybe I'll ask my husband about that later. <laughs> yeah, what could have caused that if, if yeah. the hypoglycemia would have had something to do with it? Right, I don't know. right. That's a very good question. In June of 2000, the trial started and the prosecution decided to argue that she killed him for the settlement money, even though it was several years later and they were married and, uh, you know, it didn't really appear as though that made a whole lot of sense. They didn't have a whole lot else to go on. And they know that a jury wants motive. And so that's what they were selling. They claimed that there had been two noted disturbances with his IMED pump, which I guess is a pump that he was he used, which I guess if he had a pump and she messed with that, then he wouldn't even need an injection site. But I don't know. I guess they were thinking of all avenues. A hospital consultant, which was her brother-in-law, accompanied D during the entire visit where this supposed pump fooling with the pump happened. Oh, I guess that's probably at the hospital now that I'm thinking about it. Maybe while he was in the hospital, they were saying they were claiming that there somebody was messing with the pump. Like while she was visiting, you mean? Right. But her brother-in-law said that he was there the whole time. But here's a revelation. Maybe that's why she married him was because she knew he was going to get a huge settlement. He did get in the accident, but if it was something that wasn't his fault, mm-hmm. uh, this could be the other avenue. Maybe the jury's seeing it that way. Like she did, you know, uh, she knew the money was coming. So it was like, why not marry him? I mean, I hope that that's not the case, but you never know. That could be how a juror saw it. I could see a juror, maybe, especially if you have a prosecutor leading them down that road. Either way, hospital staff testified that even if it had temporarily been tampered with, it would not have caused any significant physiological disturbances because he was already terminal. So whatever she did, it wouldn't have necessarily affected the outcome. I guess their point is, I honestly think that after doing (laughs) weekend and week out, for three years of these these shows and talking about these stories of people doing quote bad things, I've actually come across enough of them where the police and the prosecutors have skewed evidence. I don't want to say I don't trust our criminal justice system, but I don't trust our criminal justice system. I mean, I, I do think that jurors and the general public put away too much faith in the prosecution and they don't 
even consider the fact that the prosecutor may just be like a dog with a bone and all they want is that conviction and they'll do and say anything to get a conviction. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you're right. People may not understand that, but that's, that's their job. They want to look like they're winning their cases. Right. And I think sometimes the jurors look at it like, oh, well, if the prosecution, they're on the good side. You know, they wouldn't be prosecuting them if they weren't 100 percent sure that they were guilty. I definitely don't think that that's the case every time. I'm not saying that I think that everyone involved in the criminal justice system is is crooked or bad or I I don't mean that. And I don't think that. Sure you do. Sure you do, Tina. (laughs) I do think, though, that jurors, don't you think jurors put way too much faith in our criminal justice system and just think they're very naive? But you know what? It's not just that. It's it's when when you don't know, you don't know. Like it's the same thing. Like people put faith in doctors, and not all doctors are good. And people go to a physician, and they 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 trust. It's like oh my god. Some people look at them like they're a different status. It's a doctor. Like they're a doctor. Like you can't talk back to them. They know everything. But it's not always that way. It's not always that black and white. You know. And it's basically the same thing. You know. Yeah, I do agree. I think that, you know, as well as everybody listening to this podcast, that a lot of weeks I do bad doctor stories because there's a lot of them out there. They're people just like us. And any anyone can go to medical school. Not everybody can. Obviously, you have to be intelligent to be able to get through medical school and, and become a doctor. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're a good person, a good person. Yeah. You may not be a good person. So the prosecution also tried to claim that Nick was possibly having an affair and then they switched to accusing her of having an affair with the family doctor. So it was like they were all over the place and they were just throwing anything at the wall to see if it would stick, you know, for the jurors. Like, let's give you this and this, just all the stuff. You take it and do what you want to with it. And if you have 12 people who believe, you know, in the prosecution, believe in the criminal justice system that much, they might be just going, wow, well, I could definitely see where this, you know, oh, he's he was having an affair. She was having an affair. This was happening. That was happening. And instead of really looking at the evidence and what was, you know, really going on, right. doubts were raised over his symptoms because apparently they weren't very consistent with insulin injection poisoning. And that might be what you're talking about, Jessica, maybe the brain swelling, the blood tests that, you know, show the elevated insulin levels and apparently low peptide level, C-peptide levels. So when insulin's made with the body, there's an en- enzyme called C-peptide and that's proportionately produced. So you know that it was artificially injected if there's not that level of the C-peptide present. And that's what they do when they when they check insulin levels. But also the testing has a large margin for error. So, and again, if if you're a lay person and you don't know this stuff, I almost feel like after doing a lot of these stories, sometimes I, I don't know that the way our system is set up with 12 just random people that don't understand the way things work, you know? I mean, you do the best you can. I've been a juror before, several times, a couple times. And you just do the best you can with understanding and you have to put faith in the people that are testifying and the, the, the attorneys. But a lot of people don't trust defense attorneys, so they assume that they're going to sway everything a certain way. But they have more faith, I think, in the prosecution. And so they, they maybe assume that they're telling the truth and they don't have a motive to sway things a certain way. But they kind of do, you know. It's crazy. Like the, a lot of this stuff is medical information. Like and a lot of people are not in the medical field and it's all about forensics and DNA and you know it's a lot of it gets complicating you know so it's definitely difficult you know and and sometimes I think jurors just want to come to an agreement like 
You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of times there'll be a couple of people that are off and they're kind of pressured into just going with an agreement to just get it done with and get a conviction or, or whatever the case may be. So that's, that's another part of it too. So we could do a whole nother podcast on the legal system <laughs> and whether yeah. it's uh, the best way, but mm-hmm. that's what we got right now, I guess. Well, the, the prosecution also kind of had a hard time building a, a timeline. Things just didn't quite add up, you know, with her being out of town when he got sick. That didn't really add up. There was no evidence that she came back by the house before going to work that morning. He actually talked to a family member on the phone after she left, well after, you know, a long time after she left. So she couldn't have given, if she gave him the insulin, she couldn't have done it before she left to go to this, you know, this little function. So I don't know. I feel like there's so many questions that were supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And there's so much reasonable doubt here. It's hard for me to understand how she got convicted. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. So, Brayden, you actually reached out to me about CBD Stack because they sponsored a podcast a couple of months ago. And then I was so happy when you reached out to let me know that you really liked the product. So tell everybody your experience with it. So I get chronic headaches. If you saw my life, like what I'm doing, I just had a kid. I'm starting school. I'm moving into a house. I, I just have so much on my plate. So after getting this CBD oil, I tried it. I put it on and within 10 minutes of my headache, it started fading away. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. It it was. So I love CBD stat. They have an excellent product. I use the 5,000 milligrams. It's a lifesaver. Their product is really pure, very strong. And that's probably the reason why it works so well. Yeah. They have a a really nice, like 30% off discount. That's, that's amazing for all of our listeners. And the way that you get that discount is that you have to go to their website at cbdstat.care. So it's not .com or .org or .net, it's .care. So cbdstat.care, and then you put forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. So, and by doing that, then it sort of takes you to a special portal where you will get 30% off of whatever you order, which is really cool. It is. And it's 100% worth it. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys, if you're interested in it, go to www.cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse and get your 30% off. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, Y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com 
and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. The autopsy had not included any testing on the brain. So, and then later, apparently they some more they did some more tests that that did not show signs of hypoglycemia. So it's just a lot of conflicting information. And to me, that should be plenty of material for an acquittal because where's the proof? But she's still in prison right now, currently, I'm assuming, yes? She was convicted of killing him and she was sentenced to life in prison. She appealed in 2002. Oh no, she's out yeah, of prison. She appealed, it was denied. It, she was Her case was referred to the Court of Appeals who denied that appeal as well. And then she was released in 2015 after serving um, um, the minimum sentence that was required. And she still maintains her innocence to this day. She said that Nick was, quote, a big man with a huge personality. She said, I loved him, would never have tried to harm him. I would certainly never have put my son at risk as he could have through being in the house when Nick was taken ill. So in other words, she is saying, she would have never done something to harm Nick while he is in charge of her son, her, her son who's in kindergarten. She would never have just left him there. She said, the facts are so simple. I left home. Nick was alive, albeit feeling drowsy. By the next morning, he had suffered an irreversible illness at home in bed. And that is it. All the character assassination that was to follow is just inconceivable. And that's what she said about everything that happened afterwards, the press just absolutely mutilated her in the papers, you know, with, with their coverage of the story. They attacked her character. They ridiculed her for covering the mirrors. As part of her grieving process, she covered the mirrors. This is something that's done in some cultures. And they ridiculed the color of her jacket. She apparently wore a lime green jacket to, I don't know, to the funeral or something. And they fe apparently felt like that was inappropriate. Maybe it's the only jacket she had. Who knows? Do you think it could be possible that he was self-injected the insulin? Who knows? Right. Maybe he was sick of living. Maybe he was over it. I don't know that I could have convicted somebody based on this information. It just isn't. It's too. It's still too iffy. I don't know. I'm surprised that this, this actually got a conviction. But yeah, it really concerns me about her. What kind of counsel she must have had because it just seems like it should have been so easy for them to form reasonable doubt in this case. I don't know if it really it's possible that he injected himself because they would have probably found the insulin, you know, somewhere near him if he had, you know, I would you would think. And again, I That's true. Would he, he was apparently a loving father. I don't know that he would have done that to himself and left his son there with with no one to, to care for him and not knowing when anyone was going to, you know, come around to find him, you know, if his hypoglycemia or could that be indicative of anything else? You know, he did weigh 280 pounds. It doesn't say anywhere in the in the research whether he was pre-diabetic or diabetic. Could that have been something that was coming along, even though he wasn't be, you know, dealing with that at the time, maybe it hadn't been diagnosed. Who knows? Maybe he had a stroke and they misdiagnosed it. Like I, I'm like, this whole story is just cray cray. Very bizarre. That's for sure. Yeah. Things get misdiagnosed all the time. It is a very curious case. It's an interesting case. These cases I like to talk about because I like to point these things out to people. I just want to, for people to think, you know, if you find yourself on a jury, don't assume that the prosecution is painting the whole picture exactly the way it is. They are there to win a case. They are there to get convictions. Right. And their job depends on them getting convictions. So if 
they've had this case presented to them and they have to show the evidence. They're going to do whatever they can to get that conviction. That is a little tidbit from Tina, right? Just Tina Tina's tidbits. little notes there. <laughs> yeah, Tina tidbits. I like that. That could be a little side thing. You could have like your own little group of Tina tidbits. <laughs> Don't think the prosecutors know it all from Tina's tidbits. Don't park next to vans. That sounds kind of strange. Don't, Don't go camping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't talk, don't take candy from a stranger. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Exactly. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains. That's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So now we get to get into the next thing. Yes. I'm so excited Yay. about this, Joshua. That's so what I've been waiting for. I know. So you guys know, I've talked about this a few times on the podcast several years ago when I first became a nurse and started working and taking care of patients at the bedside, I started seeing certain patient population would come in. And I remember being completely shocked. I had no idea. I was 40 years old and I did not understand. I did not know that this existed. There were patients that would come in that were paralyzed from the waist down, paralyzed from the neck down, just dealing with horrific medical issues because of injecting drugs because of, and, and so I had always known that it was a possibility for people to die of overdoses. I never understood that a long-term effect was that you could in, get infected from that, you know, from, from injecting and how horrific your life could become because of that. So I've talked about that for years, about how shocking that was to me and how I, I want to do more to bring awareness about that. But also, I've had family members who have passed away from overdosing, who've suffered from substance use disorder. And so I'm really excited to get to have Joshua on today because he's going to talk about very sensitive story. And I really am proud of you, Joshua, for being willing to step up and talk about it. I know it can't be easy. Joshua is an ER tech. He lost his brother, Matthew, to a heroin overdose after battling substance use disorder for years. Matthew's heart was donated to a man needing a heart transplant, something else that we talk about a lot on this podcast is, is organ donation. So Joshua and his mother and father were able to meet the donor recipient, who is, his name is Irv Basden of Fairfax, Virginia, and they were able to listen to Matthew's heart beating inside of Mr. Basden's chest with a stethoscope. Gosh, if you just imagine that, I don't even know. I, I don't know. It's hard for me to even fathom that experience and what that must have been like. But Joshua runs a peer grief program called Grief Recovery After a Substance Passing or GRASP. And he does so many other amazing things because of this experience. And Joshua, I just want to welcome you. And I just want to hear your story. I just I want to want you to just tell your story and um, let everyone know, you know, what are you doing now? And what's your experience about? Again, thank you for having me. So never in my wildest dreams could I imagine for a, one picture that I had taken of my parents listening to my brother's heartbeat would have snowballed and turned into um, this and being shared multiple times on many different sources and outlets um, throughout the internet. So, you know, that's one thing that amazes me. So I'm Josh. 
I lost my younger brother, Matt, in 2014 to a heroin overdose. Matthew was a young guy, one of my best friends. And um, during his time of struggles, I had um, already had a job at the local emergency department. And I was at the ARTAC courage for, for a few years. And um, prior to Matt's death, I had started taking some EMT classes. And um, during my EMT class, that's when, unfortunately, um, Matt had suffered his overdose. And I had to repeat the class over. And long story short, uh, I realized that I didn't want to be an EMT and work with everybody anymore. I wanted to work with patients with substance use disorders. So since Matthew's death, it is just, you know, it inspired me to help others and to really just meet them where they're at. Shortly after Matt's death, Tina, like you had said, I found a support group called GRASP. Uh, it was the local Perry Hall chapter here. And um, it was run by a mother who lost her son a few years prior to that. His name is Daniel Carl Torsch. We actually have a foundation here in Baltimore now that help people with substance use disorders, which I'm actually a big part of their foundation and one of their outreach workers. So I found this meeting called GRASP, and uh, it was very beneficial. And about a year after attending it, I uh, ended up taking over the meeting and started running it. So for the last three years, I have had the honors of running the support group and meeting those who unfortunately have lost loved ones to overdoses, whether it would be a child, a mother, a father a sibling, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. And not only just did they lose them of an overdose, but each story is very unique in itself. So shortly after Matt's death and starting to run this meeting, it encouraged me to do more speaking and um, public awareness of, of heroin overdoses. And not only heroin overdoses, but during Matt's death, when Matt passed away, like you said, he donated his heart to a gentleman in Fairfax, Virginia. So when Matt passed away on April 18, 2014, which was actually Good Friday, he passed away and was declared brain dead. His organs were donated on Easter Sunday. So on Easter Sunday, four people received his organs. So because of that, four people received a heart, a lung, liver, kidneys, and pancreas. So because of Matt's death and doing this outreach and support group, it has snowballed me into being able to help others and really meet them where they're at. Because of Matt's death, I got to share the story with about 700 medical professionals and organ recipients and organ donors at a huge conference held by the Living Legacy here in Baltimore, Maryland, which has grown into also speaking at my local high school. So for the last four years prior to COVID, I had spoke at the local, my local high school during the senior SAT assembly. So just got to share my brother's story and, you know, really educate kids on the destructive decision paths that they could actually go down. So with all that being said, here we are, we fast forward into today, into today. Here we are. My brother must be knowing something's talking about him because something just fell off my wall, right? I heard something. I'd heard a little noise. I didn't, I didn't know what that was, but. It was like this paper that I had just taped up on the wall here. And it just, it's been there for weeks and it just fell. Fast forward to today. And because of Matt's death, I actually am not only a peer outreach worker, but I am the uh, OSAP coach in the local emergency department. So the emergency department that I've worked in is 11 years for a tech and the emergency department that my brother actually came into during his overdose in the ICU that he actually passed away in. I now am the overdose survivor outreach program coach. So I get to see everybody that comes into the local emergency department who suffers an overdose. I really get to just, you know, meet them where they're at and 
not only share my brother's story, but kind of listen to them because you never know, you know, when somebody's out there struggling, you never know when you may be that shining light or that brightness in somebody's darkest moments. You never know when you'll be able to plant that seed and be able to get those people people help. So who ultimately made the decision as far as organ donation? Like, did your brother have that listed on his driver's license or, or, or did your parents? Well, a little bit of, uh, thank you for asking. That's a good question. Matt was in jail, incarcerated before his death for 217 days. And he was out for 27 days. And during the 27 days, he went, we live right out back of the MBA. So the Motor Vehicle Administration. And Matt went over there and he got his ID. He didn't have a license, but he got an ID. And um, this is a story that my dad likes to tell everybody that um, <laughs> Matt came home and he um, had that little part on his ID. And I say it like that cluelessly because Matt didn't know what it meant. And um, <laughs> he got it anyway. So when he came home and my parent, he told my parents, I didn't do that. I didn't sign up for that. I don't want him to take my stuff. So, yeah. So that's actually a little, a uh, little uh, funny thing. So Matt ultimately made the decision. Yes. But when it came down to it in the week of Matt and the ER, my parents, you know, had to make that decision after a week of being on life support and uh, doing everything that the doctors could. He was declared brain dead, like I said, on uh, April 18th, which was Good Friday. So that was... um, I want to give your parents kudos, though, for being brave enough to agree to that and to do that and to being non-selfish and going above and beyond and realizing that even though Matt was no longer able to live in this world anymore, that he could help somebody else go on and continue to live is one of the most amazing things that somebody could do for somebody else. And your parents deserve all the kudos in the world for that. The only other thing I wanted to say was, I know this is a podcast, so it's all audio, but if anybody has a chance to look up that photo, Okay, because I don't think anybody understands how gorgeous that photo is that Joshua took of his parents actually listening to Matt's heartbeat for the first time. It is the most moving photo I've ever seen, which is how I met Joshua was through that that picture. Actually, I had posted it on on my page, but you can see that it's a combination of of pain but joy at the same time. It's very hard to explain. Joshua, you should be so proud of yourself for taking that picture. What a, you know, you probably at the time weren't even thinking what, like you were saying, what an impact it would have on some people, but it genuinely is, it's, you can see it in in both your parents' eyes. It's, it's grief, but it's also like my son's living on. And it's, so if, if anybody listening to this has a minute to look it up and look up, up, um, that photo you will be it, it'll bring this all full circle so I'm sorry that I'm rambling but I felt like that was important to say yeah absolutely and we can put it on our social media too for people to go see okay well good I don't have it right now but I'll definitely be able to, I'll give the link oh good episode. and then you can post it on your page too Tina so that people could find it that would be good the link that you sent me Jessica I can see a little thumbnail of it but I can't see the image and I don't know if that's just me and my weird browser or whatever but the picture is real small, but I could definitely see it. So if you if you have the original Joshua, I would I would love to you know put it on our Instagram or Facebook or wherever for people to see because it is a very touching photo. I can definitely send that over to you. And um, real quick to add to the meeting part about meeting the the recipient who received Matt's heart. This is how God works in mysterious ways. So not only did Matt pass away on um, Good Friday, 
but then donate his organs on Easter Sunday. During Matt's viewing, like I said, I was in the local, uh, I was a EMT class, so I volunteered at the local fire department. And during Matt's viewing, I got a text message from one of the girls that was a girlfriend to a guy at the fire department. And she says to me on Facebook, I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your brother, but it's so bold for me to ask. Did he die of an overdose at Franklin Square Hospital? And I felt, why am I asked? Why is she asking me this? This is so rude in this time. He's not even in the ground. Come to find out, her father-in-law actually received the pancreas and the kidney. And because of him receiving the pancreas and the kidney, he was a diabetic since age 13. And his creatinine levels, I'd have to read the actual text. I have it. I can't think of the numbers, but they went down right after he received his kidney and um, pancreas. And the guy is now free from diabetes because of Matt's organs. But like I had said, Matt was incarcerated prior to being, you know, his death. That gentleman that received the pancreas and kidney is actually a Harper County Sheriff. So small world. So not only does it's how crazy, how ironic that is, but when we got to meet the gentleman Irv for Matt's heart, this is how everything lines up. And it's very ironic, but I'm a twin. And I have a twin brother named Jared. And when we got to the Living Legacy building that day, it was on a Saturday. And they actually opened up the building for us to meet because we were supposed to meet prior, a week prior to the, to the day that we met and took that photo. But my parents had their first vacation scheduled since Matt's death. And they were headed up to Niagara Falls. So they didn't want to cancel their vacation. So we rescheduled it the next Saturday. Well, little did we know the next Saturday was actually July 16th, which was Matt's birthday. Um, so we actually met them on Matt's birthday. So that picture was taken on July 16th on Matt's birthday. But it gets, it gets, it gets. I, it does. It does. I know it gets better because I've heard it before, but it's like all these different things are just, if you don't believe in God and you hear this freaking story, it's like you, you have to understand that there's some higher power or something. So we get there and the gentleman who received Matt's partner has two daughters. And not only does he have daughters, but they're twin girls. And so, like I said, I'm a twin and my birthday is March 28th. Irv's daughters are twins as well. And their birthdays are March 29th, 10 years prior to my twin brother and I. So now my brother that passed away, not only does he have twin brothers, myself and I, but he has twin daughters who are, you know, it's it's kind of hard to have this smile in my face talking about my brother's death. But in the same breath, it's leverage. It gives me the fuel to be able to help those who are really struggling. Because unfortunately, even with my brother's death, I have a sister out there who's still struggling in active addiction. And I do everything I can to not only remember my brother's death, but to fight because the people that I see could be my sister, uh, you know, they could be my brother. So fast forward into today, because of Matt's death, I not only help run this local support group, but I also am help, I'm part of an organization here in Baltimore, Maryland. And like I said, we do a lot of naloxone training and harm reduction work. So really meeting people where they're at and really being able to meeting the needs that some find not necessary just to be able to meet those people and plant the seed to engage them just so they know that, you know, somebody cares out there. Maybe not today or a week or six weeks, maybe not even a year, but one day they may remember you and they'll remember you and they'll come back and they'll say, either can you help me? Or they'll remember some words that you said to them. Just remember that, you know, you care. And I have patients tell me that all the time. Like, man, you don't know what you say to me, like how it, you know, 
really inspires me because as tough and I mean as soft and heartwarming and gentle as I try and want to be, sometimes I gotta show them a little tough love too. So that's really, you know, my because of my brother's death, it brings me here today. And it's able to, you know, not only help others on the outside, but be able to meet people like you two who get to share the story and, you know, get to be able to open up more and be able to really educate, you know, and to provide awareness that, you know, not only people that are struggling, they're not alone, but people's family aren't alone, you know, that they, unfortunately, people think that, you know, they're the only ones struggling with family members that have lost their lives or family members that are struggling with addiction, but it affects everybody. It affects all races, all colors, all communities. Can I just say that this is the quietest that Tina has ever been on a podcast? I, and I'm being serious. So the first well, segment we were in, that is how she is. And this is the first time that I've ever, and I'm actually... It moves me because I think that Tina really, really appreciate. I told you you were going to love him when I told you about him. But it's the first time I've actually, she has had been a loss for words. And I said, he's a great speaker. I said, you would be, you will be moved to hear his story. Uh, it's a very, very touching one. Every time I talk about it, it brings me to tears because not only did your brother save people by donating his organs, but he also moved you to help people that may have killed themselves due to an overdose or something. So his, his death, even though it's awful, it continues. It's still continuing to help people and save people. And that itself is, is crazy. Like it's just unreal. You know, sometimes I do think that he probably gets upset with me talking about him all the time, but um, <laughs> you know, it actually brings me up on a tear up right now because one of Matt's best friends actually just got out of jail. And he's like, I call him my brown brother from another mother because <laughs> he's Brazilian. And, you know, obviously we're here, here Caucasian. So it's my brown brother from another mother. But he just got out of prison. And, um, you know, we get to talk about Matt all the time. And he said to me the other day, man, if Matt would have only knew how many people you have inspired and affected because of him. You know, my sister don't even realize it. You know, my sister don't realize what her actions are doing today inspire me. You know, it makes me up every morning to know that somebody could be her one day. You know, my patient, uh, not going to lie, you know, I, I'm scared shitless sometimes to go to work to see my caseload because knowing that my sister lives that right lifestyle and I'm on the other end of it, it's like playing, who knows, by the blessings of God, I got a picture of her on Thursday, Wednesday, Wednesday of last week. So I know she's okay right now. I know oh, she's good. There, and she knows that I'm here. So, you know, when the time comes, we'll be there and we'll. How did you get a picture of her? She sent it or? No, I have eyes everywhere. Everybody okay. knows me. Everybody okay. knows my, you know, so. At least you know she's still fighting and she's out there. I mean, yep. you know, I have a weird sense, right? But I just planned this resource day in the park here in Dundalk on July 24th. And I actually am bringing in a lot of different treatment service providers and just table setups with naloxone training and harm reduction supplies and, uh, we have a peop we have a gentleman coming with his two guys that are doing free haircuts and um kind of just you know meeting people where they're at giving out some free food and um clothes but it's in the same area that she frequents you never know god bless you i mean you're still i mean i know you would be i'm sure you want to see her i mean it's that's got to be hard you know did she actually attend uh, is it okay if you to ask if she attend his his funeral. Yeah. So she was actually doing very well. Uh, my sister had suffered with 
substance abuse uh, my teenage life. Um, but then she had been clean for, uh, sorry, not, we don't use the word clean, we use the word drug free for about five years prior to my brother's death. She had a job at a bar and it kind of transpired one thing led into the next and then she went back down that road again. So she's there. And then, like I said, I have a twin brother. He's good. He drinks, you know, not too, he drinks, but, um, <laughs> he's got his little vices too, I'm sure. Yeah. But we, we all do. I appreciate you both for allowing me to share my story. But Jessica, you made me nervous when you said, don't worry, or, you know, butt in if Tina bulldozes you over. And I she feel, like I, she I feel do. like I done bulldozed Tina over now. So <laughs> No, th- I'm saying this is the most amazing podcast of hers I've ever been part of because <laughs> she, I think she wanted, and she realized it needed to be from your point of view, not her point of view, you know. Uh, who's better to explain it than the source themselves? You know, I mean, that's the best way and the most, most moving way. How are your parents, by the way? I know this is off. Are they doing well? Are they? They have their moments. They're getting ready to go on a camping trip and spend some time together, you know, off in the woods, uh, in a tent for a weekend. They're good. My, like I said earlier for the support group, my father attends with me every month. Um, he's very supportive, very encouraging, you know, talks to people on the phone with my mom even seven years in she doesn't like to talk about it she doesn't like hearing people's story so my dad and i kind of censor things like you know when we come from grass other than that they're well you know they handle it well they don't have any i shouldn't say deficits from it but you know they maintain but hey kudos to them that they're still together i mean a lot of times this brings marriages apart and people don't survive from this not not only losing your brother but you know to have a sister that's disconnected and out there I mean that's that is a struggle marriage I can't even imagine I just and they help raise my two nieces so you know addiction affects everybody and it's a snowball effect and that's are they still there with you guys are they oh yeah that's why before the recording you didn't see me go I had to fan them out and then I sent them a text message (laughs) <laughs> quiet time i'm on a recording i know i remember last time when you and i did our thing they were coming in and i was like just bring them in here <laughs> let them get on here for a minute but they were so cute god i wasn't gonna cry what happened <laughs> turned on the waterworks um if you just have five more minutes i'll actually share this story that i actually wrote that i share at the high schools so it's called <laughs> stop it before it starts I hate Mondays is said by so many. For my mom and dad, this has a totally different meaning. They came home like they always would on Mondays to watch soaps. The night before, God gave my family a second chance with Matt. Mom just had a feeling that something wasn't right. Imagine looking through a hole in the door and seeing your son lying on the ground. My dad had to kick the door to get in. Matt was laying there with vomit in his mouth and a needle still in his arm. So many of you are probably thinking, how did my family get here? Our family wasn't perfect but was always full of love. Sunday dinners at Gaga and Pop-Ups, Christmas Eve at my aunt's house. Matthew Paul Shetterly was a cute, blue-eyed, blonde-haired little boy, the youngest of nine grandchildren. Matt was a son, brother, uncle, father, grandson, and friend. His list could go on and on. Matthew growing up was a typical little boy, played baseball for the local rec team, loved the outdoors, lovable, and would be willing to give you the shirt off his back. Unfortunately, Matt's first demons reared its ugly head when he was kicked out of school at 16. Time was on his hands, plus being alone equaled trouble. 
Matt got mixed up with the wrong crowd. Drinking and taking pills became his norm. Matt's name became a regular on courtroom docket. No matter what trouble Matt got into, my parents were always there for him. Matt always seemed to have good intentions, but somehow ended up making a wrong decision or was just simply dealt a bad hand of cards. Those demons never discouraged him. He always came home after his mistakes with a fresh start and wanted to change for the better. Over the course of four years or so, Matt's demons took on all forms. He used, abused, and sold drugs. His habit became his only thought, getting that next time, making sure that this one was better than the last. Our family noticed change in Matt. The friends that would come around, he became isolated. Family didn't matter, short-tempered with everyone, and his appearance started to dwindle. From the outside, Matt fit the stereotypical description of a user. His many tattoos and piercings created that badass appearance that the demons just love. Our family felt that Matt's last time in jail finally fixed him. When he got out, the badass scars for those demons were still there. But that blue-eyed, blonde-haired little boy was trying to grow into the man that he wanted to become. His outlook on his friends changed. He wanted to earn his GED and make an honest living for himself. Family became important to Matt. Matt wanted to be a father to his son that the demons never allowed him to meet. Matt was 27 days clean at home after being 217 days clean in jail. Matt's body was healed. It finally learned to live again without the demon. Something triggered Matt in Matt and those demons got one last time. This time was too late. This time was the end. For one week, my family had spent day in and day out at the hospital. The same hospital that I consider my second home, the place where I'm usually doing the healing. Now I'm the one that needs to be healed. Holding Matt's hand, singing with him, hoping God, hoping that God would give us another chance, but knowing that this was the last time with my brother. I become speechless when I think about my parents and how numb their world had become, knowing that they would be putting their child in the ground. That's just not the natural order of life. On Friday, April 18, 2014, the Lord called Matt home. Kind of ironic, considering it was Good Friday. Matt always had a good heart. He helped ease the pain by deciding to let go. At least we did not have to make that decision. The demons probably felt that they got one last lap, but they didn't. Matt was able to donate six organs, his heart, lungs, liver, kidney, and pancreas to four individuals. Because of Matt's gift of life, those individuals no longer have lifelong illnesses. So this brings me why I'm standing here in front of you this evening to tell my story so that hopefully your family doesn't have to suffer. Your family doesn't have to have the emptiness that will never be filled. Feeling like heavy bags of sand are on your chest and only a thimble size of weight is lifted each day. There are signs, signs that can't be ignored. If you have a gut feeling or suspicion, act on it. Don't be afraid or embarrassed to discuss your concerns. Resources and organizations are there to help. My brother's death has provided me with the opportunity to speak about our area's rapidly increasing heroin epidemic. So remember, you may only get one chance to stop it before it starts. Wow, that was beautiful. Well said. Thank you for letting me share that. Thank you so much, Joshua. I really appreciate you being willing to share your story and you know your strength to be able to do that because it's a very powerful story. No doubt about it. Very powerful story, but it's very you know it is very sad. And it's hard for me to listen, you know, to it without Jessica's talking about me not talking. And I, I, I'm trying to just like let you tell your story. But I also have a hard time talking when I get emotional because I, I, I I'm an ugly crier. It's just awful. And you can't understand a word I say. So I just I always can tell.
drugs or that decides, I don't want that to be me. I want to, I want to stop doing this. That's your purpose. But I, I'm convinced you probably are, are, there's no telling how many people's lives you've changed. And, um, and your brother has changed indirectly. You know, he, that's, that's going to be his purpose now. And so everybody has a purpose and a why, and that's yours. And you figured that out at your young age. It took me a long time to figure mine out. So that's good that you figured it out at such a young age. You've got a long time to left to. Me too. I didn't figure mine out till I was 41 years old. <laughs> I just want to make people laugh. So thank you. And you both have really, really not only touched me tonight to be able to share this story, but inspired me to keep sharing that story. And I look forward to being able to share this podcast on, you know, my Facebook and everything else because it helps. And uh, real quick before we go, if you YouTube the Daniel Carl Torch Foundation, so that's D A N I E L C A R L T O R S C H Foundation, that's the foundation that I um, am a peer outreach worker for. But we just filmed some videos and are posted on YouTube, and it's all about um, drug use and wound care and LGBTQ and drug use. And um, so I'm actually one of the speakers. You'll see, you'll get to see me um, uh, on there. And uh, we actually have a sign language interpreter sign language interpreter and um a few things like that so check it out too so that way you can just see and thank you again for being able to let me share my story and at first i was hungry and tired and you know i was like oh man what i always (laughs) sign up for this is my life i always say yes to everything but then it look at it it's so i'm so glad that you did it i know it took us a a a month or two to get it organized and for it to finally happen. But I knew okay. that it, it was, was going to be, I knew it was going to be amazing. I knew it. I told Tina, I told her, I did. I so said, actually, get him on here. it you was meant to. to be because what fell off my wall is my speeding tickets that I just recently got, you know, so they've oh, been up here. He is getting you. He <laughs> is telling you that okay. you're not perfect. That's what he's saying. And they have been up on this wall for two weeks. Okay, that I've been, I've literally had them tacked in front of me because that's my visual to say, pay it, right? He's picking on you. So Matthew knows that we're here talking about him and I can't wait to get upstairs and tell my parents what he just did. Yeah, he's, what he's saying is, listen, I know you're saying all the bad things I did, but hey, look at you. You're not, you're not perfect either. That's a typical sibling, typical sibling right there. I love it. (laughs) I love it. That's great. Your parents are going to get a kick out of that, honestly. <laughs> you know, the fact is that none of us are perfect. And this and a substance use disorder is a disease. It is something that once it gets a hold of someone, it's something that you don't know that you have that you have unless you try drugs. And unfortunately, people do that and then it gets a hold of you. That. Yeah. So my heart goes out to those people. I have all the compassion in the world for those people when I care for them at the hospital. And a lot of times, unfortunately, they come into the hospital and they come in almost with a chip on their shoulder. They expect the healthcare workers to kind of, you know, have an attitude toward them or to not care about them because they're, quote, just an addict. And I can tell you from my point of view, I've never had that attitude about someone. And just, I mean, I do have family, so many family members that you know, from the, the, I live in the Appalachia area and it's just an absolute epidemic here. But I also feel like a lot of my coworkers don't have that attitude either. Every, you know, we, we try to have compassion for everyone. We understand it is a disease and we want to just encourage people to seek help if you, if you have, you know, if you're struggling with this. Just remember that person is somebody's child, somebody's father, somebody's mother. Um, yeah. So they're related to somebody. So, yep. To so treat them with kindness and try to remember, you know, even if, you know, 
lot of times people that are in the hospital struggling with this, no one in the hospital is at their best, if you think about it, but there's, there's certainly, you know, especially if they're going through withdrawals, it's just, you know, you, you ch if you chose healthcare, you chose to help people and it, it shouldn't matter who they are. It should not matter. If you're interested in organ donation, you can go to OregonDonor.gov and get more information about that. I've always, I always like to encourage people to get more information about that. A lot of times people are afraid of organ donation, um, but I've always encouraged people to get the little heart on their, their driver's license. I have one of mine, and it definitely saves lives. There's no doubt about it. And I just want to remind you guys, you can email me if you want to at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can email your stories. I love hearing from you guys. And you can find us on at goodnursebadnurse on Instagram. We're on Facebook and Twitter at GNB and Podcast. And love to hear from you. I'll put uh, the photo of uh, Joshua took um, on on social media as soon as we get that up. Well, when this release, when this episode releases. And Jessica, remind everybody where they can find you. Oh, well, thank you, Miss Tina. They can find me on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Everything is Nurse Jessica Sites. And that's spelled S-I-T-E-S. -E I had somebody email me and ask me how to spell your last name. Yeah, S as in Sam, I-T-E, and then S as in Sam again, Sites. Like, uh, set your sights high, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that, that's probably the wrong spelling. I don't know. But it's S-I-T-E-S <laughs> -E anyways. Yes. So uh, if you want to get a little laugh about the medical field, that's what I'm all about. Most of the time, I do show my sensitive side, which John Joshua knows, but um, sometimes I can't yeah. have that. All day, I, I never turned down a laugh, and I never was like, you know, that's why you can't take this serious. Thank but. you for doing this. I'm like, honestly, I feel bad. He's got to go back to work now. Like, seriously. Like, I'm just like. I am all for the day. I mean, I'm all for the hospital, but now I have to deal with the community outreach. Stuff. Oh, okay. Well, you're still working. You're doing your thing. So you're still doing your thing. Matter of fact, he just called me two minutes ago twice, and he's calling me from a 7-Eleven phone, so I won't Okay, well, we better let you go get him or do what you need to do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you so much. And I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. <laughs>